0: You yeah.
1: Welcome to Pastor Yeshua, and uh, welcome for those of you who have been regularly listening. You know that we are currently engaged in a continuing study of prophecy, of eschatology, that is a study of last things, and specifically eschatology and prophecy regarding the rapture, the great tribulation, God's wrath, and the second return of Christ. Now, as you know, thus far, we have been doing something that The church, especially the evangelical church, has uh, uh, neglected to do for the large part of the last uh, at least thousand years or more, which is to look at these issues, not simply isolating the various passages in the New Testament which allude to these issues, but rather looking through them in and through the prism and context of Leviticus chapter 23 and accompanying passages in the Old Testament, which outline and specify the feasts and festivals which God prescribed and commanded to Moses as his appointed times. Thus far, we have examined the spring slash summer feasts and festivals, which, as we saw, prophetically predicted with amazing accuracy the exact timing of Jesus' triumphal entry, his crucifixion, death, burial, and ascension to the Father, as well as the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2. We next looked at the interim period between the spring-summer feast and festivals and the fall-winter feast and festivals, which some refer to as the Gap Theory, or the Times of the Gentiles, or the Church Age. Finally, in our last episode, we studied and defined the pre tribulation, the mid tribulation, as well as the post tribulation views, which have been the classic theories for the timing of the rapture relative to the great tribulation. In this episode, we begin in earnest with the details of the fall winter feasts and festivals of Leviticus chapter 23 and we're going to discuss their application to the timing of the rapture and the tribulation and of Christ's second coming. And ultimately, predictively as a spoiler, what we're going to see is that when God's appointed times found in Leviticus 23 and elsewhere are married with the New Testament proclamation of Christ's return, then the long-awaited answer, if you will, to the timing of the rapture, the great tribulation, and Christ's second coming are rather straightforward and obvious. In fact, one would go so far as to conclude that the entire reason for the feasts and festivals given in Leviticus 23 and elsewhere is one ultimately of eschatology. God wanted his people his believers, his children, to know what he was going to do ahead of time. Why? Because by doing so, God shows his overall control, his sovereignty, so that by being able to trust him in these areas and show faithfulness, we can then trust him in other areas, such as our salvation, our sanctification, and ultimately our glorification to be with him for all eternity. So, this being said, let's take a look and dive into the fall-winter festivals of Leviticus 23 and elsewhere. As you will recall, the first official feast or festival of the uh, fall-winter season falls within the month of Tishri. This feast or festival has various names and various themes which are given by the Jewish people by culture and by history, so it's important to pay attention to these names because they're going to give us clues as to what they're referring to. So, the first feast or festival is that of Yom Torura, that is the day of shouting, or also alternately called Yom HaKeshe, the hidden day or Rosh Hashanah, as will appear on your Gregorian calendars, which means head of the year. In other words, it would be the Jewish uh, January 1st, the Jewish New Year, if you will. It's also called, quote, the Day of Awakening Blast, unquote. It's also referred to as the, quote, Day of Concealment. Its themes are that of marriage, resurrection, rapture, The coronation of God as King of Israel, the uh, return of Messiah, uh, various titles here, all of which give us some strong indications about what this feast or festival is pointing to as a type. Now, again, this feast or festivals, as we previously discussed, are found in Leviticus chapter twenty-three, verse twenty-four, and also Numbers chapter twenty-nine, verse one. And by reminder, the Jewish month of Tishri falls within our Gregorian month of September and October, depending on how that exactly works out. But in any case, what we need to remind ourselves of is that in the case of every Jewish month, the Jewish month is dictated by the various phases of the moon. So. In order to know when the first of any given month was coming, the Jewish people would have to look up, and when the new moon appeared in the sky, they knew that that signaled the first of the month. Now, by tradition, because uh, this was not just to be a haphazard sort of situation, the high priest would appoint two witnesses who were dedicated to Uh, officially look up into the sky and to be looking for the new moon. And when these witnesses saw the new moon, their job was to then contact the high priest and let the high priest know that they had respectively observed the new moon. The high priest would then himself look up and confirm that in fact, yes, there's a new moon in the night sky. At this point, then, the high priest's job was to then officially declare that the first of the month had begun and that any feasts or festivals which might be occurring in that month could then begin. Uh, the Jewish people did not have the luxury of just deciding for themselves. This had to be officially done in order for things to proceed. So, this is, these are important concepts we need to understand as non-Jewish people. Lastly, in order for uh, the people of Jerusalem and the outlying areas of Israel to, in fact, be aware, since there were no cell phones or telegraphs or any of that kind of thing, once the new moon had been sighted, they would light signal bonfires on high hills to uh, notify the Jewish people. So that was how that took place. Now, with regard to Yom Torura and Tishri the first. It's important to understand that this feast or festival is the only the only feast or festival within the Jewish month which falls on the first of the month. Now, why is that important? This is important because uh, we're going to encounter some uh, various challenges, shall we say, with regard to sighting the moon, such as atmospheric conditions, clouds, uh, fog, so, they might not be able to see it right away, and as a result of that, in order to be faithful to God's command, what ultimately the Jewish people did was, with regard to Yom Terur, it's the only feast or festival where they actually consider two days, two 24-hour periods, as one day. Now, you might ask, well, why do they do that? Well, the reason they do that is in order to give themselves enough time within that 48-hour period to actually see that new moon. They don't want to miss it. And if they narrowed it down to just a 24-hour period, and that day happened to be a very bad day with a lot of fog, a lot of clouds, and so forth, they might not see it, and they might miss it. So they officially consider two days as one every year for this particular a feast or festival. Now, this is going to be important going forward, as we'll see, but just put that in your uh, feathered cap, if you will, and, and and hang on to that thought. Now, just some more cultural nuances of Yom Teruah. Even today, Orthodox Jews believe that Yom Turura marks the sixth day of creation. That is a Would be our Friday, or the day preceding the Shabbat, or the Sabbath, which would be the day of rest. So it would, uh, the sixth day would be the creation of Adam and Eve. And what is extremely instructive about the ultimate meaning of this festival is that the Jews consider that God gave them this festival to teach them about the resurrection of the dead, the coronation of the Messiah, the wedding of the Messiah and the freeing of the slaves. Again, these are all concepts that come from Orthodox Judaism and uh, have nothing to do necessarily with Christianity, but we can clearly see a very messianic Christian concepts in these themes. So what happens on the actual day of Yom Terur? Well, as we stated, because of the previous month of Elul, we had the festival, the unofficial festival, if you will, of Teshuva, as you will recall, wherein the Jewish people would begin to blow trumpets in order to signal 40 days of repentance and preparation for this up-and-coming festival of Yom Torura. So, uh, that being said, we now have 40 days of trumpet blowing, and preparation, and repentance, and of turning to the Lord, and now we have the first day of Tishri with the new moon, and here comes Yom Torura. So, on the actual day of Yom Torura, at the beginning of the festival, it's signaled by a blowing of various trumpet blasts. All total, the trumpets which are blown are approximately in the neighborhood of a 100 trumpet blows. But these are very specific trumpet blows that are uh, have different lengths and different tones and different things like that, all of which mean specific things to the Jews. In any case, uh, the trumpet blows in general, uh, the first is called the tekiah. It's a long, single blast. It's a straight, plain, smooth, continuous note, and it's to symbolize the expression of joy and contentment for the beginning of Yom Torura. Then you have another trumpet blow, which is called the Shivaram, which is three short blasts, a combination of three broken notes to symbolize weeping. Thirdly, you have the uh, Trua which are a series of extremely short blasts, which are a combination of nine staccato notes and a very quick succession of short uh, trills. This symbolizes trepidation, sorrow, and sobbing. And then finally, there's a fourth uh, trumpet blow, which is referred to as Tikaya gadola. The Kadiah Gadol is defined as the Great Shofar, or the Shofar Shel Moshiach, or the Trumpet of Messiah, or the Shofar Gadol, the Great Awakening Blast, the Coronation of our King Yeshua, or the Last Trump. This one symbolizes the hope of redemption. It is a very long, final note, as long as the blower can uh, maintain the uh, blowing without passing out. So all of these trumpets are blown at various times, but as stated, the very last trumpet that uh, note that is blown, which is only blown once, is the Takaya Godola. After that, there are no more trumpet blows. When the Takaya Godola is blown, it signals that traditionally that all the workers who would at this point be out in the field with the wheat harvest would have a signal to know that the harvest was officially complete. And when they heard that trumpet blow, they knew that it was a signal to stop harvesting and to leave the harvest area and to return and to go to the temple where they would worship Yahweh. Now, this being said, let's talk a little bit about trumpets in general, because as you look at the Bible, Scripture, from cover to cover, there are many, many times where trumpets are blown. But, in general and overall, if you were to likely as not ask a well-educated Orthodox Jew, what is their understanding of uh, God's redemptive plan with regard to trumpets? What do these trumpets overall, how uh, how do they break down? Well, they would likely say that uh, there are three and that the first trumpet, which is significant to them, would be found in Exodus chapter 19, verse 19, where uh, the trumpet is blown, as you'll recall, on Mount Sinai and God therein meets with the people at the foot of the mountain and he engages in basically, if you will, a marital relationship with the people. At Mount Sinai and the giving of his covenant law as a signal of their obedience to him. Secondly, there would be, and this would be a New Testament concept, but nonetheless, we have this reference of quote unquote the last trumpet found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, and also 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. In both cases, Paul is talking to churches wherein he's talking about the soon-and-coming return of uh, Messiah, who they had been looking for ever since that he ascended to the Father there in uh, Acts and told everyone that was looking on that he would return in like manner. And therein, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13-18, through 18, Paul is talking to the Thessalonian church who are uh, almost somewhat despondent, if you will, because apparently there was somebody who came into the church, whether it be a false brother or somebody else or by letter or in person, who had suggested that because they were undergoing such great persecution, such great tribulation and all of that, that the fact was that they were currently in the middle of the great tribulation and undergoing God's wrath, and that was why they were seeing all this stuff that was going on. They had already missed the rapture, if you can believe that. And so Paul, who's looking at this and hearing about this, says to them in verse 13 of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep or dead, those brothers and sisters in Christ who had fallen asleep and died at that point. I I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those people that have died. I don't want you to sorrow, even as others which have no hope. He's talking about those who don't know Christ. In verse 14, he says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus God will bring with them. So in other words, they may have died, and their physical body is buried somewhere, but when Jesus comes, those that have died, he's going to raise them, and he's going to bring them together with us. And in verse 15 he says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. So he's simply saying the first thing that's going to happen when the Lord returns is the dead in Christ are going to be raised. And as soon as they're raised, the next logical uh, thing that happens is going to be those that are alive are going to be transformed. And they're going to receive a glorified body, and both the dead and those that are alive are going to ascend with Christ to be with him forever. And that's what he says in verse 14. He says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then, verse 17, we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, raptured, together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord Verse 18, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a classic chapter clearly dedicated to the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection of Christ as the cornerstone of our faith and in, in our belief. And what does he say there? It's even entitled in my Bible, it says, the mystery of resurrection in Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. He segues and he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Verse 52. Pay attention here. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Verse 53, For this corruption must put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality. Verse 54, so when this corruption shall put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And it continues, and you can read on your own. The important thing is this issue in particular in verse 52, which talks about, quote-unquote, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, unquote. Now you have to ask yourself, both the Corinthian church and the Thessalonian church. Imagine yourself sitting in the congregation and hearing this message from Paul, and he says these things about a Trump, a last Trump. And you're thinking to yourself, what Trump are you talking about? Uh, Is he just being euphemistic and saying, you know, as we do today, uh, uh, when something happens, you know, we blow a trumpet in order to signal something, and that's all it is, is just some euphemistic remark? Or is it referring to something specific that they would have been aware of as Jews? Let's recall that all of the people, for the most part, that he's talking to in both uh, books are largely Jewish people. I ask you, would not these Jews have been aware of every year of their life they're, they're undergoing this feast and festival of Yam Torura and the blowing of trumpets, would not they know about the Tagaya Gadola, the last trump? Of course they would. It would be like uh, your ABCs, your one two threes, 3s as, as a kid, that's the first thing you learn. You're not going to forget it. So the minute you say your ABCs, everybody's going to understand you're talking about the alphabet. Same thing here. When he talks about the trumpet, everybody knows he's talking about the Feast of Trumpets. That's what he's talking about. And the last trumpet being the Tagaya Gedola. It's straightforward, but you don't understand that unless you have this Jewish mindset. And because the church has forgotten about it for a large part of over a thousand years, we have now no understanding, no context when we read this about what he's talking about. As stated before, most people assume in the evangelical circle that when they read and try to give explanation and commentary to 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians regarding this trumpet, most people believe what he's talking about is, oh, he must be talking about the last trumpet in the book of Revelation. Well, that's a problem because the book of Revelation hadn't been written as yet. So how are they going to know about that? It doesn't make any sense. But in the Jewish culture here, they understood what the great trumpet was, the Takaya Gedola, because on the day before Rosh Hashanah, on the day before Yom Terurah, the Orthodox men would undergo a mikveh which is nothing more than a ritual bath, and they would change their clothing into pure white linen, why? Because it's pointing forward to what's going to happen at the last trump. We're going to be changed. We're going to receive glorified, purified bodies with no sin. So, of course, white represents purity. Further, the, th- the theme at this time of the year for the Jews, as stated, is repentance, reflection, prayer, self-reflection. The concept that God has quote-unquote books that he writes our names in, and he's going to write down who will live and who will die. It, even today it's traditional at this time of the year for Jews to greet each other, saying in Hebrew, L'shanah Tovah Tikatuvu, which means, may you be inscribed in the book of life for a good year. The book of life? Where have we heard that before? Oh, that's right. Revelation. Because if you're in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're going to receive eternal life. So if you're still unconvinced as to what Rosh Hashanah or Yam Terura signifies as a type, consider that also that Rosh Hashanah, Yam Terura, is also called Shevlei Shel Moshiach. It simply means, translated as, the birth pangs of the Messiah also known in Jewish culture as the time of Jacob's trouble. If you don't know what Jacob's trouble is, basically what that means is the great tribulation, God's wrath being poured out. So it's almost synonymous, these two. So let's be clear. What we're talking about here is we've formally wound up with uh, Pentecost, with the uh, harvest of the Christian church, the Gentile peoples being brought in and then Yom Torura where the trumpet is blown, and we have this idea that there's the return of the Messiah and the transforming of people from death to life and those who are alive being transformed. It sounds like we're talking about the rapture. Now, at this point, there's more to say about the month of Tishri and the feast or festival of Yom Torura. I encourage you to be patient because you're going to see that as we add information with the subsequent feasts and festivals which follow Yom that the overall chronology is going to fit hand in glove with what we understand of a pre-tribulational model. So, until then, this concludes this episode Please join me for the next, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor-yeshua underscore at yahoo.com. That's p-a-s-t-o-r underscore y-e-s-h-u-a at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. The
2: world, the world. found me. Christ, the rock, is my foundation. I will trust in Him. I will trust in Him. I will trust in